Janae and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Murch, producer and host, and we're up to number two of three of chats in and around Broadway and musical theatre. And today we're going to a local, for us anyway, production happening in South Australia. Jonathan Larson's Rent takes stage in Adelaide this month. The story of Bohemians will be performed inside the Queen's Theatre. Director and cast member Benjamin Mayo Mackay is today's feature guest. The book, The Music and Lyrics were by Jonathan Larson. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Larson is, in fact, the character, real-life person, mm. of the Tick Tick Boom. Yeah. It's been really strange because as a musical theatre performer and, and, and lover, for years I've known about Tick Tick as well. And then the film came out late last year with Andrew Garfield and it's sort of blown Tick Tick to the proportions that I sort of remember Rent being. Like Rent was the main thing that John was known for 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 years and Tick Tick was this little autobiographical off-Broadway musical about him turning 30 and having a a crisis. It sounds like a midlife crisis, but a bit young for that. But uh, now with the film and Andrew Garfield's incredible performance, and I'm normally not a fan of movie musical adaptations. They they rarely land. Mm. We we get pretty awful ones. I heard that there was actually a 2005 version of Rent. Whenever someone brings that up, all I have to say about it is it's from the director of Home Alone and the first two Harry Potter films. And now look, there is nothing wrong with any of those films. It feels like the the child-friendly version of of Rent and it just it lost so much of the heart and soul. And one of my other significant problems with the film is that so much of Rent, the musical, is sung through. So there's very little actual dialogue. Uh, Even the most talkative scenes are often set to music. And with the film, they kept the dialogue almost identical, except they made it spoken instead of sung, or they took the music away from it. So what you end up with is people talking in ways that they don't normally because it was music lyrics and now it's just straight up dialogue. We're talking about this tick, tick, boom, because I don't have pay TV. I have Mm. no interest in getting it, but it is a phenomenon of some sort. It's definitely become one. It's been really lovely to see because tick, tick is a, is a little musical. Like it's when you see it on stage, it's three people. Uh, It's very small. It never made it to Broadway. It was an off Broadway show for its entire run it didn't have the public response or, or notability that Rent did. And I'm so happy that this film has at least let a handful more people know about it. And yeah, with, with a celebrity playing the role and playing it well and getting the award nominations, we really have now, yeah, a phenomenon, which is sort of nice as a as someone who's loved John's work, because some listeners may know that John passed away before he saw the success of Rent, so he never lived to actually have a success. It's nice that the the two works he left behind are now in equal sort of stead in the pop culture sphere. They are incredible works, and it's been really interesting. Even with Hamilton, there's so much that people have borrowed or you know musically paid tribute to within new work. You can hear bits of of John's influence, which is lovely because if you listen to John, you can hear bits of Stephen Sondheim's influence. And I just love the the cycle that musical theatre has so much. And I'm sure it's the same in, in pop music and, and other genres that I don't really engage with as much. But the fact that John has influenced a whole array of composers and lyricists after him is 
quite beautiful. What mm. was your first introduction to Jonathan Larson? Was it that of Rent or was it something a little more off-Broadway, literally? Yeah, so Rent was my first introduction to, to Larson um, because it was... Tick Tick didn't really make it over here in the pre-internet days and finding anything was a challenge musical theatre-wise that wasn't sort of, you know, your Phantom, your Cats, all those albums were everywhere. But I had a, a cassette which was the highlights of Rent. It was a single cassette and it had maybe 12 tracks from the show. But it had some of the hits. It had things like the title song Rent, it had Light My Candle, it had one song Glory, La Vie Bohème, the ones that kept in the film essentially like the, the the film soundtrack but before the film and i found that a music store just down the road from here um actually uh, which is now long gone as many of them are and that became an obsession i latch on to things shockingly i was diagnosed with autism later in life but um i latch on to things and just become infatuated so learning as much as one possibly could at the time about rent and about john hmm. was suddenly the i have to do this i i need to know more hard to find at the time because there were also so many rumours because for a long time a great portion of the theatre community outside of New York thought John had died of AIDS and I was definitely one of those people when you say that he died of a heart condition to people now there are still a few who get shocked because I've never looked into it considering what he wrote about and the worlds that he was living in that kind of made sense so there were so many rumours like that at the time what's really interesting about uh John and the assumptions that we make and everything with with or were made in that regard is that as much as Tick Tick is the actual autobiographical musical, Rent is about his friends and he was quite open about this and there are many documentaries and I've watched almost all of them in the process to sort of end up working on this show. But John had a very close group of friends uh, and he'd do holiday dinners essentially which is one of the reasons that rent is pretty much chaptered by holidays so it starts at christmas it ends at christmas but we have new years we have valentine's day we have halloween and he would have these family dinners essentially for his friends and his friends end up being the characters in the show and talk to people who know or knew, knew john rather and everyone in rent is a real person that john was connected to in some way and obviously there are embellishments and things but it's really interesting when you then look at rent in that lens because the character of mark is the john character and i'm not going to spoil the show for those who haven't seen it but it's fascinating to examine the character of mark with the lens of going john was writing about himself because that character is an outsider from the experience that everyone else seems to have within within the show Mm. and you do wonder if that's how john saw his own life because I, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that most characters in Rent have AIDS and are living living with HIV. And Mark is the one character who really isn't. All his friends are dying around him and he's left alive. And then, of course, the cruel irony of, in the real world is that some of John's friends who have AIDS are still alive and John didn't get to live it at all, um, which I guess it almost adds a, a more depressing note to the whole show and to the examination of it being in a weird way, semi-autobiographical as well. That particular era of the HIV Mm. AIDS era was very much the younger years of your life. It was, yes. And possibly even just before your informative years, Mm. which is an interesting time to have something so publicly discussed in your life. Can you talk to us, if you wish, Mm. about how then 
was projecting or acting with Benjamin and his life. Yeah, look, it was a was and almost remains to be, unfortunately, such a taboo topic. The, the lack of information in the scare campaign were frightening. And, and it's one of those sort of reasons that there's a level of, um, not to remotely speak for every queer person, but I think a lot of queer people have the self-loathing, especially ones who grew up through through the 90s. I mean, not that people before didn't, but it was a different kind of the government was saying, you know, you are going to die, only you can get this virus. And what has been horrific is that it's almost become cyclical because they're doing the same thing with monkeypox. Neither of these viruses are exclusively queer viruses. Straight people can get AIDS, have got AIDS, have passed of AIDS, and straight people can get monkeypox. But I'm finding it really interesting watching the parallels, the, the speech and the, uh, the advertising material, and even look, the rollout of the vaccine for monkeypox you know, being pretty much exclusively available to uh, queer male-presenting people. And it just it becomes vilifying all over again, because all it does is just build that same, oh, you don't want to get near the queer people. And the fact that this year is also the 40th anniversary of the first AIDS diagnosis, like there's a there's a whole lot of depressing cyclical nature. And I think that my first recollections of hearing about AIDS and the virus was were just fear and internalized loathing because of the the way the information was being presented. And I think that the difference, or at least the difference now, I I hope exists and. I do a bit of teaching, musical theatre teaching, so mm. to stereotype, but it's true. There's a lot of queer kids within that that you see. They have the resource of the internet being a place of connectivity as opposed to having very little in that regard. The kids, kids and up to teenagers and things as well, but they're a lot more open with themselves, with each other. So I'm hoping that as much as that directive targeting and language being used around this particular virus, I hope, as destructive as that is, I think that they've got a different community to fall back on where back then it was the people you knew, that was the community. And was it really all you had? You yourself, Benjamin, are someone who lives with, I think it's copper disease that mm. you have. I I went through the ringer uh, and, and still take handfuls of tablets a day to keep sort of functioning. And uh, there was a period where I was blind and... A lot of truly horrible things for a very long period of time and a lot of question marks from a diagnosis point of view. Mm. And there was just one incredible doctor who actually went, oh, maybe try this test. There's always the one and it felt very sort of cinematic in that regard. Of, oh, one doctor went, try this test. Oh, it's that thing. Now we can medicate control. Not fix. There's there's no you know, permanent solution, but balance and manage was very useful in streamlining my priorities you know what I want to do with with life and who the people that I choose to spend time with any type of serious illness makes you aware of the possibility of running out of time before you plan to hmm. I'm not in that position currently but you definitely go, okay, do I actually like this person? Do I actually want to work on this project? Do I, you know, I, I think it gave me a mental permission to turn certain things down, to stop seeing certain people who didn't enhance my life uh, and to go, okay, you know, I love theatre. I'll fly to Melbourne and see three shows this weekend because it's going to bring me joy. Yeah, you get to reassess 
your life priorities and I am oddly thankful for that experience. Back to Larson for a moment mm, if we can. Of course. <clears throat> In terms of him having his diagnosis and, of mm. course, the ramifications of that, him personally possibly knowing he didn't have that mm. long to, to go. At least for what we know about John, it was a surprise. He he didn't... Mm. He didn't know he was running out of time because everything was undiagnosed. He also didn't live the healthiest of lifestyles from our understanding of him anyway, in terms of just worked himself to death, essentially. And as much as most performing artists have at some point worked themselves to death, I do wonder what John would have done differently if he knew how little time he had. Hmm. He was so passionate about Rent and the show and and theatre. And I think that's... One thing that was really important to me in working on Rent is that every creative was as passionate about the show and about John's legacy as John would have wanted. Because John can't speak for himself. He only had, The production speaks for him or the show, the material speaks for him. That's all he's got. That's, that's it. Hmm. In many an interview, he, he talked about Rent being the thing to maintain his friend's legacies. And now I look at it with the lens of what's well, our responsibility to maintain his legacy with the show. So when it came to the rest of the creative team, uh, our musical director, Jesse, our choreographer, Nina, Matt, my co-producer and our technical director, everyone has a strong tie to this show, to this material. It's so important. Potentially the most important part of this for me was just making sure that he was done justice because he couldn't do it himself. As the show rent the importance of it being about community and projecting that to the wider audience who choose to come. The show and the, the characters, you know, are, they're a, a chosen family. And I think you see that so, so much. And I, I will always use the word family for them because domestics and fights and breakups and everything sort of happens within the scope of this, you know, two hour show. But there's, ultimately always a deep love and trust between our sort of eight lead characters and what's been beautiful to see in the past three weeks we've been rehearsing is that connection genuinely starting to build within our cast members playing the leads and uh, there's a couple of people I've known uh, for a very very long time and have been very close with externally but then there's a whole heap of people in the show that I've never worked with I haven't met until this year and you know, haven't spent time with them outside of the show but there was one rehearsal last week where we were working on some particularly heavy material which is part and parcel of this show and it does sort of emotionally hang with you a little bit afterwards and you know someone suggested we go to the pub and and we did there was a bar down the road and I think we were the only people in there and there was this Joying connection within that moment, despite having worked through some of the most depressing and, you know, people cry often in rehearsals in a good cathartic way. I sort of looked around the table at that point and went, the connections here are becoming as strong as the connections within the characters' lives. And that's been really beautiful to watch unfold. And we've got, there's romantic couples within the show as well. And watching those connections form, they're just, they're so cute. We've got, you know, Angel and Collins have some of the happiest moments in the show. And we got to block through some of those last night. And it just, it fills me with such joy watching those two people and characters 
just become real in front of me. It's It's been lovely. And I'm really glad that, especially our leads, obviously our ensemble is incredible as well, but our leads develop the connections with each other because we all have to believe that they're a family because they are representing many of the logical and chosen families of ourselves, of the audiences. And, you know, we've got an almost entirely queer cast, which is so important from the queer representation point of view as well. I've always felt strongly about the show, but I feel like this production is solid and watching the emotional journeys of both the actors and the characters has been really interesting. We had some long conversations last night with a couple of the actors about the people they're playing and and who they think they are and and how they're finding the connections between themselves and the things that are similar and, and dissimilar to their lives and the characters' lives. And look, there is a lot of emotion within this within the show the themes that it covers are are heavy there are absolutely fun moments but you know you can sort of count the fun moments on your hand and then the depressing ones are the other two hours i am very glad ultimately you're left with a happy feeling and it's really interesting when you listen to the cast album of rent you kind of go ah the, the last song's a bit eh. like it, it's not the best thing in the show and then having now watched people do it and, and been part of it as an actor as well myself, I go, no, there's, there's a very specific reason that this last song is here and it's purely for the moment. And you can record it and it's eh, but when when it's followed the emotional journey for both the characters, the actors and anyone watching, it's 100% necessary and doesn't work in isolation, doesn't work when you're shuffling it on your phone or you're listening to it on a CD, but Finale B is a nice combination of all of the emotions and does, I think, leave the actors, the characters, and the audience in a better place emotionally than if you sort of cut it beforehand. The technical direction Mm. for this production, Matt Ralph is on board for this. So Matt is incredible, and I've never worked on a a show that's been so collaborative, not just with someone like Matt, but with uh, Nina and Jesse, or other creatives as well. I've often joked to Matt that we are co-parenting a musical because, I mean, we both feel very parental of it, but Matt is is focusing on the, the lighting design, the set design, costumes, props, all of the things that are absolutely necessary and enhance the show, technically, uh, hence the title. They are one of the most incredible lighting designers that I've, I've ever had the privilege of working with, and they are equally as well-versed in theatre itself, which is such an asset, and obviously there's a, a huge privilege that comes with that, but they've they've seen almost everything that's been in this country in the past year, which means they're learning from other people's triumphs and mistakes. There's just such a benefit of seeing theatre, good or bad, if you're creatively working in the space, seeing as much theatre as you can is fantastic because you do learn from people's mistakes and triumphs. And there have been times where they've walked out of a show and called me immediately and gone, this, this show did this lighting cue in this way to emphasise this emotional moment. How about we use something like this here and here because that's going to tie it together. And every time I'm like, yes, that's, that's genius, that's brilliant. And there are so many subtle, clever things that I don't even think audiences are going to pick up on, but just ultimately enhance the show. And look, I, I would say it's worth seeing a couple of times if you, if you have the ability in Adelaide to see the show twice because there are definitely things that end up sort of being called back to uh, which you won't notice on a first viewing within their technical brilliance. 
This production that you're doing also, and this leans into that technical direction of Matt Ralph as well, mm. is that of it being a non-replica staging of it. My understanding of that is you've got the absolute bare bones that come in the book, the musical and the lyrics of Jonathan Larson, mm-hmm. and then you get to build on top of that world. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm always advocating for in theatre is just different productions. There's no creative joy, at least as a director, from copying what was done on Broadway for for 20 years. That's not particularly fun, but that is the way that a lot of companies choose to go, and that's entirely fine. Now, we haven't changed anything material-wise, because that's that's John's work. Book, music, lyrics, all there. Correct. But it's completely different to any staging that's previously existed. I think there are two moments in the show that people recognise, and I'm happy to say one of them is from is the Seasons of Love, which is eight people standing in a line in spotlights. You literally can't do that number better, and I'm happy to acknowledge that. The rest of the show is not an imitation, is not a copy. You won't have seen this staging before. It's still 100% true to the narrative. It doesn't change that aspect of it. But where's the fun for audiences and creatives to see the same thing again? We're not those people. This is a different cast. We're going to stage it in ways that demonstrate the strength of our cast and our creatives. And, you know, there are people... I have a look at the Facebook ads because we've had quite a, a strong social media campaign. And there's a lot of comments from people that go, you know, I saw this in the 90s in the first production, which I think had Casey Donovan and uh, Matt Lee in it. And I can't wait to see this version. And it is this version. Queen's Theatre mm. being that perfect venue to actually do a non-replica staging yeah. of Rent. I'm so happy that we get to use the Queen's Theatre. I mean... Firstly, the history of the building and the fact it's the oldest mainland theatre in the in the country. I'm also happy that it's the first major musical since the renovations. But because the building is old, it has, it has the right vibe for the show. And part of our design is that we are not covering the back wall. You will be able to see the exposed brick back wall with the cracked windows behind our set. Because that's what it looked like in the era-appropriate destination you know it's set in the the lower east village like it's set in alphabet city in new york which is not or was not a particularly pleasant place to be and we've got this wall that just fits right into the set so why cover that up one of the things that i really enjoy about how rent was written and this this was a choice that john made uh before he passed is that there's a there's a life support group that sort of takes place within the show and they've left room for or they've allowed you to change the names of those characters because they're not significant characters but they're all on stage for a few minutes and they allow you to change the names of the characters to people who actually passed away from AIDS within the community and we've been really lucky that Samesh here is supporting the production in general but has also given us a list of appropriate names to put in the show which is just obviously the show is grounded so much in realism as opposed to most musical theatre um which is absolutely not a criticism of other musical theatre. This is just heavy and real. But I think that just adds an extra layer of it. And I'm really happy that we've gone to the effort to do that appropriately. It's been really nice to have the support of, of Samesh and to have the support of you know, working with a couple of charities and things as well, donating a, a portion of ticket sales and things. Because the ramifications of the AIDS and HIV crisis, it's still ongoing. And I'm really glad that we've had the resources and the support to provide information um like we have we have a school booking for rent which 
look, it's a very adult show, but the school was made aware of that. And I'm, I'm happy that I guess that they're comfortable exposing the students to this because there are a lot of great conversations that are going to be had, I think, as a result of them seeing it. But same as is helping us put together a resource book along with them so we can pass on appropriate information for that age group as well. Because I think, and we're going to have a, a QR code link available in the theatre that links people to appropriate mental health resources and sexual health resources that is being put together by these charities and same that we're working with. Hi, Steve Davis here from the Adelaide Show podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll probably enjoy ours. We have an eclectic range of guests covering an eclectic range of topics, all to put the passion of South Australia on centre stage. You can find us at theadelaideshow.com.au and of course, in your favourite podcast app, Spotify, everywhere you find them. Right now, though, back to John Murch and Radio Notes. We're currently in conversation with Benjamin Mayo McKay. Rent at the Queen's Theatre is the 6th to the 15th of October 2022 in Adelaide, South Australia. 1868 was when the opera La Baham was big, was happening. Mm. Rent is loosely based on, on La Baham, and that was the impetus for John starting the project. I think someone approached him and said, I think you should or we should rework this for a contemporary time about our artists, you know, the world that we live in and consumption became AIDS, you know, there, there were changes like that. So there are very much parallels. There are a couple of songs that you can even go, okay, this is the version of that. I think from a staging point of view, at least with our production, we've lent into some of the more darker realism that the opera did that some productions of Rent have shied away from. So we've sort of drawn a little, where I've, I've drawn a bit of inspiration from some of those choices because there are now productions of Love OM that are staged similarly to Rent because they've sort of seen that that was based on that and then come back around again, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. The biggest change between Love OM and Rent is the ending. Love OM has a very depressing ending. I'm not saying the ending of Rent is happy, but it's significantly happier. But I'm hearing mm. that your production of Rent mm. is leaning into the darker elements, so mm. you're willing to go darker in the body and then go a little lighter at the end. Yeah. That's that's more satisfying. It, it really is. I think you get more audience payoff. You get a complete emotional journey. And I think that's really important for both cast and audiences to have that ebb and flow. Only seen the opera once in its entirety and then a sort of picked bits and pieces to rewatch and re-examine as I started this process many months ago. And I think it's really interesting. There are even just small lyrics that, that Larson has quite literally translated and borrowed that have ended up in the show. One day I'd like to sort of sit down and see it again after having spent so much time with this book and material because even being a big fan of the show, there have been things I have not picked up on until working on it. In, I mean, as you do, when you spend you know almost every hour of every day consuming mm. the material and thinking about the material and the subtext and the inference and the everything, you do learn a lot more. But now with this lens that I have, I'd love to finish this process and go back and see how much more I can get from Love OM as a result. You know, once once Rent ends, I will shut the door on that chapter of, of my career for a little bit. Um, like, it's just, just the Rent chapter, but I'd love to work on Tick Tick. There are definitely other Larson things that I'd want to examine and other absolutely other musicals. There will definitely be musicals next year that I'm working on. I can say that for, for sure. But things of this ilk you know someone asked me not we're offering you to tour at way but would you tour this show as much as 
that would be a really great experience. I'm not sure if I would because firstly, we've built it around the theatre that we have and that has been a really specific part of what we wanted to do. And secondly, it's exhausting as as a performer to, to take away the director hat for a minute, purely speak as an actor. Physically, it's really tiring and I've not I've worked on a lot of shows, but nothing quite like this emotionally because it's and it's not remotely about method acting because I don't believe in that. That's that's nonsense. But the thing is, if you get into a mindset, your mind can switch off and you can have control over that. But your mind has put your body through the emotions for real. Mm-hmm. You can't turn that off. So if you've activated your fight and flight, that's happened. And that just adds a level of additional exhaustion to the whole process which is not a bad thing because it means everything is, is, I guess, working as such and the experiences feel real to both the cast creatives and then hopefully audiences. Both pros and cons for me is I'm playing romantically opposite a very, very close friend of mine, which does mean we laugh at inopportune moments sometimes in rehearsals, as you do when you've known someone for so long and now have to make out with them. It can be weird. But I'm also, my character is also letting down someone that I love very much in the real world nightly, you know, I'm carrying someone that, you know, beyond the character, I, I, I look and see a friend, a very close yeah. friend and go, oh, you know, you're dying in my arms kind of thing. There's a whole level of different emotional intensity that comes with that. Let's talk about music, of course. Liberal Home is uh, leaning into the opera world. Mm. Benjamin, is opera part of your musical palette normally as a listener? It's not. The two genres I engage most with are musical theatre and this next one's probably going to come as a shock to a lot of people. And country music. I really enjoy the often narrative storytelling that exists within country music like that. So it's lot. not the campness of it? That's a part of it, especially when you're talking Dolly Parton-esque era, and, and I love those things. But there's something really nice. Even people like Taylor Swift, who I guess started country, went pop, has moved back to country in a lot of ways, or at least folk she tells a complete story through a song and that's so musical theatre of it. And I and I know, and I'm not saying that pop and rock and other genres don't tell stories, they obviously do, but I guess it's just clearer to me or it speaks to me more from country music. Well, obviously the camp side of it as well is a delight, but... Sorry, stereotype in any particular oh, way, that's a bit unfair, I know. We're recording in my lounge room that has a share doll. Like, I don't think we need to be uh, worried about stereotypes. One of the hardest decisions of my life was choosing to go to the share concert or the Panic at the Disco concert. They're on the same night I went to share. Those are really the two types of music I engage with, and a smattering of pop, but not much, sort of just your Taylor Swift-esque stuff, and then like Fleetwood Mac. How deep are you then in terms of the musical theatre tunes and listening to them? I guess how much of a diet of that is it? Are you like Mark Humphrey's kind of level of that, that listening? Yes, I love Mark very much. We've only met in person a few times. Because he's a Sondheim kind he, of guy. He, he's a Sondheim. I mean, I love I love Sondheim, and I think he might be the one person in this country who loves Sondheim more than me. My favourite Mark musical theatre story is that we both made the same error in 2016. And we only learnt this later. Uh, and I'm sure there are other people who made this mistake, but the irony of us being so passionate about musical theatre, both making it. We both had obviously individually separate trips planned to New York City in the end of that year. We both love musicals. We were both pre-booking shows. We both looked at the blurb of a show called Hamilton and went, eh, doesn't really sound good at all. Don't like rap, don't like hip hop. Just why would that be good or interesting? So we both had the opportunity to see Hamilton at a reasonable price with the original Broadway cast and we both messed it up. 
I think we're both still kicking. I mean, at least I'm still kicking myself about that one. You've now had a chance to see how much. I have. I have uh, only this year because I had tickets in March of 2020 and then, you know. Stuff happened. Some stuff happened. But I, I finally got to see it. I travel for theatre a fair bit, or at least when the budget allows. And I did five shows in four days. I did I saw Penn and Teller live because I always wanted to see them. I saw Cursed Child, Hamilton, Cruel Intentions, and Six. And it was my third time seeing Six. And then I sort of walked out of Hamilton when I have to see that again. So got tickets to see it in a couple of weeks. The Taylor Swift record I did see in the corner of my eye while you were answering that. Yes. Above that is something called Nashville in Concert 2018 Farewell Concert. Maybe this is a housemate so we can move on. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's mine. Yeah. What's that about? So uh, there was a TV series called Nashville that ran from, I think, 2012 to 2018. It was a drama slash soap opera type thing, but within it, it was set in the world of country music and they wrote and performed original songs for the show. There was at least 100 songs a season kind of thing, so it was very music heavy and all of the cast were incredible musicians. I fell in love with the show, really. Um, I knew a couple of people who worked on it who sort of got me hooked or or let me know that it existed really I wouldn't have stumbled across it normally but yeah I had a a friend who was in the main cast in a non-music role for it and I got sent the DVDs and I sort of inhaled it very quickly that's sort of where where that comes from I have loved the music and it's obviously country music which I'm a fan of anyway Tour as part of the TV series. Yeah, so they, I guess. they toured all over the world performing songs from the show. Live performance was part of what they mm. recorded as part of the show. Yeah, to an extent. Um, I think that the big tours in the end were just sort of for fans as themselves or as characters. Sure. But uh, they did all these concert tours, I think three or four, and I've even produced shows by one of the stars since uh, during Fringe as well. Can we talk yeah. about Rainy Blake? Just days before we're chatting today, and it'll be weeks by the time mm. you, the listener, hear this, the new single is called Closer. It is. I've never heard their music before. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Isn't she great? That And that's the kind of music that you sort of heard on those Nashville shows and tours and stuff, and I just... What what a voice, what a writer. Very last minute getting her here for Fringe, because obviously Borders mainly, she's she's based in the States, and I've known her for a while, and we'd talked about doing some shows, and yeah, the Borders opened, and we found a venue, and she came out, and we had a couple of great concerts here, and one in Sydney, and she sort of walked away from the end and went, yeah, I have to come back and do this again next year, and I'm like, yes, yes we do, and having some more time and a bit of a longer run would be great. Yeah, I think listeners should just go and listen to the listen to the single, listen to her music. It's fantastic. Hopefully, if you're in Australia, at least, you're going to get to see her again in concert, if you so wish, next year. Benjamin, let's go back to the music within Rent now. Mm. What exactly would you say is the driving force of the music of Rent? It's a rock musical, or it's a rock opera, which I think is a really beautiful combination of things, because you get the instrumentation of rock with the emotion of opera. But it's definitely it's definitely a rock musical. Um, we've got a band, not an orchestra. Like it's very much written instrumentationally for a five piece, a couple of guitars, a keyboard. The obvious bass. question is: Are we talking live music every night? Live music every night. Wow. Yeah. Jesse Bedell leads our our band, and it's it just sounds incredible. Uh, and getting to work with live musicians is so much more fulfilling as a performer, because not that we ever aim to make things hugely different night to night. But in the event that, okay, we're going 
for whatever reason, someone's singing a little bit faster tonight, the band will catch you. Like, it drives with you as opposed to, okay, the, the track is 2 minutes 40, so you've got to sing the same thing. That, as that can be an audience thing as well. Mm. And I'm not just talking about interruptions. May there not be those. Yeah. But in terms of the audience going, gasp. Yeah. It's like, well, let's grab that gasp. And, and even applause between songs that changes that always changes um based on your audience and i i guarantee that the matinee might be a little bit quieter audience wise than the evening show so yeah having a band to actually follow us and be conducted live every night is so much so much more joyful when were you first introduced to music benjamin uh, i think growing up my parents played a lot of fleetwood mac uh, in the house which i'm very happy with it's, it's that's lasted which is nice. And it's just even having at a point like rage being on the TV, that's definitely an early memory of music. And the ra- the radio was just always on. My grandparents played music as well, very different styles of music, but they played music. So I guess I was just always around it. I learned piano from a very young age, which ironically at the time I was not particularly thrilled about, but has been a saving grace of my career. I'm so glad that I can read dots on a page and, and play music. Music's been in my life for as long as I can remember, which is really lovely. What was the first concert? Very much a rock quiz question. What was mm. the first concert you went to? First proper concert that I went to by myself would have been a Keith Urban concert. I really enjoy what he does musically. It's been weird to see him get more and more popular. Like I know he's always been a big country thing, but he wasn't playing arenas that long. Like there was, it was a time not that long ago where he wasn't playing arenas, and um, now he absolutely is, and is just killing it. So country music continued to be in your blood then? Who's a country music artist that we probably don't know about? So Keith Urban we know about, yeah. Troy Castellis, all those kind of dollies. Who's a country artist we don't know about that you're into? Australia's got a, a much weaker comprehension of country music anyway. So from, from a... Like Americans have a much better grasp on that. People... Like Kelsey Ballerini, I really enjoy what she does. Same with Marin Morris and Tennille Towns. All, all of those performers all got larger profiles in the States. Uh, Cassidy Pope as well. As you can see, I sort of lean typically more towards the, the female mm-hmm. um, Taylor Swift-esque country artists. Why do you think that is? They're more likely to not sing about trucks. Like, very genuinely, as much as I love country music, the, some of the male artists lean too heavily into the, the stereotypes because they think that's what country music is. Also, women in country music have had a much harder fight because of, unfortunately, some of the conservative audiences, especially in the States. They have to fight harder to be heard, and that means they kind of fight in their own unique sounds as well. They're not trying to fit in a box where I think a lot of the time, at least from the label purview, they're just trying to make the next Blake Shelton. And sure, I, I enjoy listening to some of Blake Shelton's music, but like, we don't need 50 people who sound like Blake singing about mm-hmm. trucks and beer, where you get narrative, interesting, musically diverse country music from women more consistently. So is there a country music performer you're looking forward to seeing in the not-too-distant future? Is there one on your radar? I'd love to see Brandy Carlile. That's bucket list. Or the, or the chicks. They're now known. Yeah, yeah, as they're now known. I missed out because uh, I was working in interstate or overseas at the time. They were last in Australia, and I have kicked myself for not making that happen let's talk about body confidence Mm -hmm. because being an actor you have to have a lot of that confidence Mm. you have to portray both yourself but also the character that you need to portray naked cabaret is something you are quite passionate and have been part of it's genuinely one of the most wholesome experiences i've ever had as a performer i think what's really important with that show 
the rules are set out by the hosts, of which I have been one before, right at the top of the night, or afternoon, as it typically is. For the most part, like 98% of the time, people are actually actually follow the rules. Hmm. You know what the rules are. You know what you can and can't do. Yeah. And it's, it's wholesome. It's genuinely lovely to see people being comfortable in themselves and exist. And it's, it's just a cabaret show. The nudity plays very little element within it. And there are times where you just forget you're standing in a room where every performer and every tech and, and it is everyone. So everyone in the venue, tech, staff, bar staff, performers, mm-hmm. audience. And yeah, all the money goes to the Butterfly Foundation. It's such a delightful thing to do. We never really announce the set list publicly, but the array of excellent and notable performers who have come through that door because they feel passionately about making people feel comfortable and being comfortable themselves. And I think there's also been watching some performers have just realisations about how comfortable they are in their own skin. I didn't get to host this last year's because I unfortunately got COVID at an inconvenient time, but Gary Starr took over and he's an incredible performer and still produced the event alongside Clicks to Cheers. And I'm really happy that even when I'm out of things, it, it goes on and it's still as wholesome and as much of a fundraising effort as it has been in previous years. It's a bit generic to say it's about confidence, but for you, Benjamin, Mm. keeping in mind that you've been part of things like Mm. Naked Cabaret Mm. and various other forms of the theatre, how has that influenced your confidence over the years? May that be body confidence Mm. right through to self-awareness? I think being on stage makes you more aware of how you exist in the real world. Just everything, the physical movements. Because obviously on stage, every physical movement is pre-thought, prepared, executed and you know why you're doing it so i think that leads you to think more about why you move in certain ways and hold yourself in certain ways and you know why you gesticulate at points in in life but i think the confidence that has come from theater is just being happy to take up space i think that being a performer you're you're told to fill space and that has translated into yeah, it's actually okay that I'm taking up space in this environment, in this community, in this bar, club, house, whatever, which is a lovely thing to have. How can a musician, so Mm. let's talk about music now, Mm. and you do do some music, Mm. how can a musician take those elements of theatre that we've just spoke into their performance? Musicians need to know how to hold themselves, they need to know how to present if they're talking between songs or sets. There's so much that directly translate live music performance is still a type of theatre in a less traditional sense but it still requires the same output i think it's things like learning how to speak properly how to hold yourself on stage again taking up space as a musician you have to be happy to take up space and that can very much be learnt from more traditional theatre methods and that also brings us to this world of cabaret mm. we have both the adelaide cabaret fringe and the cabaret festival yeah. as well. we have some pretty big names like kate sobrano and tina arena yeah. and uh, eddie perfect that have taken the reins over the years as well as some amazing south australians heading up the team for the adelaide cabaret fringe mm. what's your vibe or understanding of cabaret cabaret has been a wonderful learning tool because what you see within cabaret is people trying things they might not otherwise try. And that extends to people who are very well versed and you know, professional performers who have done it for you know, 20, 30 years. But cabaret gives you a chance to perform as yourself. There are still character cabarets and things, which are great. And I've done some character-driven cabarets and story-driven cabarets in the past. But 
traditional cabaret and the way that it's also taught is about being yourself on stage. And still, that's a version of yourself, and we all understand that. It adds a vulnerability to performance. And I've, as I've seen that with you know, high professional level performers who have come from Broadway, and now it's just them and a piano. And they're going to tell some stories in between it, and they're going to learn how to speak about their own lives. Because as actors, traditionally, you don't speak about yourself and you don't speak as yourself. So cabaret fits into a really nice midway of walking a line between a character and you. Yeah, I enjoy watching them and I enjoy watching people get better at them. One thing I do know about you, which was very exciting, and this gets back to the name of the production company mm. that you do, is that you're a Hoovian. I was. I haven't seen it any in you years. You was? Yeah, I How haven't. can you be a was? I know. And I, I feel Did bad. you tap out at Matt I, Smith? I did. I genuinely did. Was it Matt Smith though? Uh, it was the end of his era. I don't think I saw him regenerate. Even in, in my, my biggest Hoovian years, I always loved the classic stuff far more. Like mm. Patrick Troughton is was my favourite Doctor and that's if I'm ever in, in the mood to go back that's where I'm going I'm, it's nothing that's new and fancy Is that necessarily a bad thing? Absolutely not I, I, I don't think it's a bad thing but I also will say I was so happy that they passed it on to Jodie and I haven't seen anything she's done but I think she's a tremendous actor and now with um, Ashuta Gatwa as well they're, they're making good creative choices which I think will just bring a new generation of people to it It's been a pleasure speaking with you Benjamin Well thank you so much it's been great Director Benjamin Maya Mackay who also plays role of Roger in Five Quarter and Preacher's production of Rent. Tickets at rentadl.au. Season to run from 6 to 15th of October 2022 at the Queen's Theatre in Adelaide, South Australia. And singer-songwriter Rainy Blake's latest single is Closer. Next time we'll hear from... What drew you to America then? Was it Broadway? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I ever thought, oh, hey, I, I want to move there. I just started getting a lot of work there. And that's that's what happened. When I did Hairspray in Toronto, they, they brought me on tour and then, then to Broadway and from Broadway, Los Angeles. And it just kind of happened really organically. Some pretty long runs in Broadway as well for some of those musicals that you're in. Yes, and Hairspray. I also got to do Hairspray at the, at the Hollywood Bowl, the iconic Hollywood Bowl, which was incredible. I mean, Hairspray opened so many doors for me. The creative team, the casting directors, and the cast, everyone was so close. That was such a great experience. I've got in my notes someone called Nick Jonas. Nick is so, I mean, he is so talented and such a professional, and it was it was great working with Nick and seeing everything else since we've all worked together, everything else that he's been doing with his own music, with his brothers, and what a talented guy. That's Tara McRae, who has a brand new song called Waking Up in California to chat with us. Thanks very much to Benjamin Mayo McKay from Rent for being our guest this time. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 